Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Somehow I trust It may embarrass you to hear me say it But say it I must Say it I must You have the cool, clear eyes Of a seeker of wisdom and truth Yet there's that upturned Chin and that grin of impetuous youth. Oh, I believe in you. All right, yes, of course, uh, you need to know that when all this is happening, uh, Robert Morse is looking into a mirror, singing to himself uh, in those terms. So, in a way, yeah, maybe one of my favorite uh, moments of narcissism uh, in. Broadway musicals and movies. Uh, but narcissism is a term that gets slung around a lot, right? And I think we use it increasingly these days to describe people that we're just not getting along with very well. But I think also there's a growing sense that some of the harm that is done to people is done to people because they are narcissists. And some of the harm that is done to narcissists is worth trying to deal with as well. So we'll be talking about all of that today. I, I would also say that, you know, to some degree, it's become a big source of comedy, right? The I, narcissists are kind of funny. Michael Scott in The Office, you know, pretty clearly a, a narcissist. Jane Krakowski has played two different narcissists for Tina Fey in, in 30 Rock and The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Um, and, and maybe the most detailed and nuanced narcissism that I've seen on television, sort of in a comic setting, uh, is the character of Marnie, brilliantly played by Alison Williams on Girls. Um, then Marnie was both funny as a narcissist, but also kind of really frustrating and maddening in the way that I'm sure narcissists absolutely are. So we have all of that to talk about today. And before we plunge into that, I should say one more thing, which is that um, this all derives from a Greek myth. Uh, Narcissus uh, is um, is one of, I think, I think they're, are they brother and sister? Anyway, he's a young man who falls in love with himself, um, and he's uh, looking into the water. He goes to the water to get something to drink, and uh, he sees his reflection, and he's consumed with his appreciation of his own beauty in a way that excludes really being able to enjoy anyone else. Uh, and, you know, it, there are variants to the myth, but I think it always in, uh, ends pretty badly. Uh, either he wastes away uh, just because he can't do anything but look at himself, uh, or he kills himself, or it depends. But 
It's not a good story, right? You don't want to be narcissist, narcissist, and therefore you don't want to be narcissistic. However, we need to talk about it in a very strong clinical sense. Here to do that is Mark Eatonson, a clinical psychologist who specializes in the treatment of narcissists. Welcome to the show, Mark Eatonson. Hi, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. A pleasure to have you. So, yeah, this term gets slung around a lot, uh, but it means something specific within the context of the DSM-5, within the context of your profession. So tell us what the word means to you. Sure. Well, you know, you were you you uh, introduced the segment briefly by referencing the myth of Narcissus. And uh, one thing that you said, I think, is uh, somewhat of a common um, misconception about that myth, uh, it, that Narcissus falls in love with himself. Uh, and it's I think actually it's more helpful to make uh, this distinction, that he falls in love uh, with an ideal image that he sees in the water. Uh, it happens to be a reflection of himself, but but he falls in love with this being that he sees in the water. He doesn't actually realize that it's him. And I think that's important because mm-hmm. uh, individuals with pathological narcissism and NPD, um, they, their relationship to themselves is impaired. Uh, and often uh, where a, a sort of a realistic um, self-image would be uh, there's instead an idealized, objectified image um, that they um, often will spend their lives trying to sort of um, live up to. So, yeah, and, and that, that also that maybe a sense of, uh, and, you know, uh, we, we speak in the, about the myth where he wastes away. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe there's sort of a sense that it's setting up a, a, a set of needs that can never entirely be met. Can you talk a little bit about that? I, I'm since just from reading about actual clinically diagnosed narcissists that they often feel as though there's just sort of never going to be enough of whatever that thing is they think they need. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so you know, uh, when when we think about mental illness, um, we often will think about it in in terms of um, deficits. So, in other words, something that the person lacks, and uh, pathologies, and that's you know something that's there but that maybe shouldn't be or that's maladaptive in some way. Um, and so, you know, when I think about pathological narcissism, um, which is sort of the broad clinical term for it, uh, and then NPD is the personality disorder uh, that's associated with a narcissistic personality style, um, I'm thinking in terms of deficits and pathologies. And I think that the disorder is really built on top of profound deficits that uh, stem all the way back to early childhood um, and something that we would call relational trauma. Uh, which is uh, where the the very young child um, in their attachment relationship with caregivers sort of isn't getting the sort of food, so to speak, that they need to build a healthy sense of self. If they're not getting that food, um, what are the odds that, I'm not asking for specific odds, but what are the odds that they are the child of a narcissist? I'm I'm wondering if there's sort of a daisy chain uh, that gets set up here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that... um, so, so there is a genetic component uh, in in the form of something that we would call uh, temperament. Um, you know, we all sort of have like a genetic temperament that we're kind of endowed with from birth, and it it's kind of like the the biological piece that shapes you know uh, our experiences, um, especially in early infancy. You know, you have babies that are difficult to soothe, they're easy to soothe, et cetera. Uh, so that so there is a genetic component. 
Um, but I think that uh, the psychological piece, um, yeah, I think it's very often the case that, you know, a caregiver will be um, sort of in need of uh, some piece of, we might call it narcissistic supply or narcissistic gratification um, to have themselves reflected back to them in, a, in an idealizing or, or a flattering or admiring form. Uh, and so they'll put pressure on the child to um, to sort of relate to the parent, to, to prioritize the parent's emotional needs uh, rather than the parent prioritizing the child's emotional needs. And that sets up um, sort of a situation in the child where they're alienated from their own sort of authentic center of being, their own emotions. So, Mark, I, I feel as though just anecdotally or heuristically, uh, it's a lot easier to find people who feel as though they have really been hurt, really significantly damaged by narcissists than mm. it is to find narcissists. Uh, and, and I don't know if that's any part of your practice, but there, I think there's a real pervasive sense in the society today uh, that a lot of the damage that's done to people is done by narcissists. That may be valid. It may not be entirely clinically valid. But it seems to be out there uh, as a way of talking about life. Yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's it, there's sort of um, a, a cultural obsession uh, with talking about and really vilifying narcissism. Um, it's it's sort of, uh, in some ways, I, I, I think of it as like a modern boogeyman a little mm -hmm. bit. Yeah. Um, and and I try to draw a distinction in my practice and in you know my writing uh, about this topic between something that I would call popular narcissism, which is sort of you know if you go to YouTube and type in narcissism, you're going to get a bunch of videos about popular narcissism. This kind of um, very stigmatized um, portrait of of narcissism that is heavily focused on something called narcissistic abuse. Um, versus the clinical um, picture of narcissism, which is, you know, much more of a, a picture of a whole person, um, you know, deficits and pathologies sort of combined, um, and that that's better able to kind of hold the complexity of this condition, because while you're correct, it does cause, it can cause suffering uh, for other people that the narcissistic individual is in relationship with. Um, it, there's also profound suffering uh, oftentimes on the part of the narcissistic individual as well. So I think, you know, from the outside looking in, a lot of us looking at people who may or may not be narcissists but are getting identified that way, there's a sense that and this also, I suppose, sounds a lot like borderline personality disorder, too, uh, that there's no middle ground. Uh, either they are exalted uh, and at the top of Olympus or they're in the abyss. Uh, and that that's why they're doing all those things that we at least identify as narcissistic behavior, because the only alternative they have is, is ruin. Uh, I don't know if that's clinically even remotely true. Yeah, no, I think that's well, it, so it depends on how severe the um, the, the disorder is uh, for an individual. Um, somebody with narcissistic personality disorder uh, is is probably going to experience a lot of that kind of um, all or nothing, black or white uh, sort of shades of experiencing. We call that splitting. Um, but, um, you know, really at its base, uh, pathological narcissism is a disorder uh, that's 
not so much about grandiosity, which is how we all tend to think about narcissists, right? As like, you know, Gaston from Beauty and the Beast sort of strutting down the street, just full of their own vanity, uh, but rather uh, defective self-regulation uh, that leads to this kind of wide swing between grandiose uh, and something we would call vulnerable uh, states. So there's a way in which I think it's easy to conflate all kinds of different things with narcissism. And as you say, because it's kind of the current boogeyman, it's it's sort of in vogue in an odd way as a way of explaining the behavior of people who are bothering us. But I mean, I wonder if there are ways to make some significant demarcations. And I, I think in particular sort of sociopathy um, uh it seems to be sort of, you know, the, the, the two thing ideas seem to be bleeding into one another. I'll give you an example. Okay, let's say that uh, I, uh, I'm a friend of yours and I say, Mark, I, I know you're out of town. I need an apartment to stay in. Can I borrow your apartment? And you say, yeah, I'm going to be away, but my cat's there. Can you feed my cat? And I say, yes. And then while I'm there, I decide I really like your cat and I just take it with me and I go back to wherever I live, which is far away. Um, now, some people would say, well, that's a very narcissistic decision because I didn't think about Mark and how much he likes his cat. Some other people would say, no, that's I'm a sociopath because, uh, once again, I was just sort of incapable of considering the consequences uh, of yeah. this. So I don't know. Is there any meaningful distinction to make between those two ideas? Well, you know, so um, sociopathy or um, the, the DSM term would be antisocial personality disorder. Uh, sits in the same category as narcissistic personality disorder, uh, as well as two other personality disorders, borderline and uh, histrionic. Uh, those are uh, called cluster B personality disorders. And there, there is significant uh, bleed over uh, oftentimes uh, between all of those uh, personality disorders. Um, you know, I think I, I think you're correct that for a lot of people, narcissism has become uh, sort of inextricably conflated with uh, the the idea of, of sociopathy or, or or psychopathy, right? Um, and and I do think that there's often a deficit for people with narcissistic personality disorder when it comes to um, taking other people's perspectives. Um, and and part of that is because they it's so I often will liken it to a starving person, right? Somebody who's starving can only think about food, right? And they only see the world in shades of is it food or is it not food? Um, and so for narcissistic individuals, um, there, there's a kind of starving that's happening um, that their self image um, is sort of in constant danger of collapse. Uh, and when it collapses, um, it's a real spiral. Um, you know, narcissistic, so-called narcissistic collapse uh, is is uh, associated with depression, substance abuse, self-harm um, and uh, and even suicide. Uh, and so, you know, there's there's a real instability inside the person uh, that they're they're constantly trying to compensate for. And the way that they go about compensating is by creating this facade. We would call it a false self uh, that is based on, you know, sort of. Uh, a projected um, ideal, right? So I'm beautiful or I'm talented or I'm valuable or I'm whatever it is uh, that is sort of the, the person is kind of clinging to that uh, because um, without that, they sort of uh, ha have no stable uh, sense of, of themselves as, as a human being. 
Yeah, and and you know, I ran into that term just doing the reading for the show, the narcissistic collapse. And so maybe you could say just a little bit more about that. I, I, my sense is that maybe this is the point at which the strategies or compensations that the person has made to deal with that hunger, that sense of starvation that you're talking about, the sense of just you know, kind of all, uh, an almost impossibility of getting a certain kind of need met, those strategies for some reason or other, stop working, maybe because the other people they're dealing with just yeah. decide not to let those strategies work anymore? Yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, it, it's, it has to do with encountering challenges in life, uh, stress, basically. Um, so somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder um, will, you know, and this is true for any personality disorder, that the toolbox of coping skills and coping strategies uh, is fairly limited. Uh, and so there's there tends to be an inflexible reliance on one or two ways of dealing with conflict or adversity uh, that, you know, they, they sort of have. And when those don't work, then there tends to be a collapse. And that, that would be true, you know, for, again, for almost any personality disorder, perhaps not antisocial personality disorder. This is maybe a, an area where there would be a significant distinction um, uh, among others. But uh, folks with uh, antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy uh, tend not to experience that sort of a collapse. And I assume that's because the need structure is different, right? I mean, the reason that the narcissistic personality disorder sufferer is is now literally suffering uh, is because there are specific needs that he or she is trying to get met and, and, and maybe trying to get those things met by relationships with other people. And if the other people aren't cooperating anymore, th that's a real – it's kind of cutting off almost a drug that they were going after. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right on there, um, and I've I've heard it compared to a drug or or an addiction uh, before by folks who identify as, you know, having pathological narcissism or NPD. Um, it's often been said that shame is the underbelly of narcissism, uh, and so I think when the uh, what we would call the grandiose defenses, right, this facade, this larger than life, shiny um, shell, gets cracked. Uh, then it, it exposes the narcissistic individual to the underlying shame uh, that they feel. And, and it's typically a profound sense of shame and humiliation. Uh, and there are other feelings that live there too, envy and rage uh, being two of the main ones often. Uh, and so so they just they just their their coping is overwhelmed uh, and they there's typically a turn toward um, you know, things like uh, depression or substance abuse, or like I said, even suicide. Uh, at the end of the day, this is an at-risk population. So I'm about to make uh, the sort of a couple of unforgivable uh, mistakes, but we'll just deal with them anyway. And the mistakes that I'm going to make are, in fact, conflating a little bit clinical narcissism with cultural narcissism. So as you no doubt know, in 1979, Christopher Lash uh, publishes this book uh, called The Culture of Narcissism, in which he's essentially arguing that um, as a culture critic, not as a clinician, um, that what would have been pathologized in the 40s, 50s, maybe even 60s, um, 
is now kind of normalized. Uh, the 70s, of course, were called the me decade by Tom Wolfe. Uh, but Lash is making this kind of argument, really, that's almost a clinical argument. He's saying, no, this would have been identified as a character disorder in possibly in need of treatment. And now it's accepted and maybe even valorized. And probably kind of around the same time, bleeding into the 80s, you start also getting these, you know, CEO biographies, the first of them being Iacocca, you know, where these these, you know, these very rich CEOs start writing about, you know, basically <laughs> how successful they've become, uh, partly at least through their narcissism. I, I don't know. I guess the only real question that I would want you to ask, answer maybe would be, I mean, do you think there's anything to that idea that we wound up moving the goalposts a, a little bit in the way that Lash describes? Oh, sure. Well, I think what you're getting at here is the the sort of shaky ground that the, um, you know, our diagnostic system is is built on. Um, it, the So it, it it's an ongoing challenge to, to try to differentiate in a way that's valid, um, something that we would call mental illness from, you know, cultural values and norms, uh, because cultural values and norms are, are constantly shifting. And sometimes they shift in a way that, you know, starts to that the sort of mental illness kind of starts to lose ground. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, uh, homosexuality is a is a perfect example of that, uh, you know, as that used to be an entry in the DSM. Mm -hmm. uh, and now, you know, it, it, any any mental health professional worth their salt would just be, you know, loath to identify uh, what we now consider to be normal variations in human sexuality uh, as some kind of mental illness. Right. Okay. Well, um, we should probably pause there. Um, I just want to say, because we did uh, just talk a little bit about how some of these collapses can lead to suicidal ideation, uh, if you're having anything like that, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 1-800-273-8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Uh, definitely call there. Uh, don't try to live with that, no matter what's triggering it. Um, but yes, Mark Eatonson, thank you so much for joining us. Clinical psychologist who specializes in the of narcissists. Thanks for being with us. We're taking a little oh, break. My pleasure. Okay, Thank that's you. great. Thank you. Thank you so much. We're gonna take a little break. We'll be back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. 
So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed. And in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. What's the best thing for you? And the best thing for you would be me. I've been convinced after thinking it through that the best thing for you would be me. All right, so we're talking about narcissism today, more in the clinical sense than in the cultural sense, although it's very, very hard to divide the two. I, I think, I mean, culture and, and, and clinical awareness... They've never been mushed together more than I think they are today. We get a lot of our information uh, from watching shows like Girls. Uh, all right. So uh, joining us now is someone who has been diagnosed uh, as having narcissistic, narcissistic personality disorder, has sought treatment for it, uh, and is now sharing his experience and insights on TikTok and other social media. Under the handle Mental Healness, uh, joining us right now is Lee Hammock. Welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. So you you wrote this fascinating essay in, in Newsweek uh, about this whole process and and uh, of discovering this thing about yourself uh, and the precipitating event and about seeking treatment. I want to talk about all of that, but but maybe before we get to the precipitating event, in in your own words, who were you? What were you leading up to your own self awareness that was manifest manifesting itself as narcissism. In other words, what was the kind of person that you were that re- represented some kind of problem or disorder? So in my like early life before I got diagnosed before any kind of I always felt like I've been self aware a little bit just over my life because I've always kind of fit, felt like I didn't fit into society. Mm-hmm. I've always kind of felt like I've been in an outsider looking in the way I typically describe it as like, like feeling like an alien, you know, just like nobody gets me. I look like you. I talk like you, but I don't feel like you do. So throughout my entire life, I'm 37 years old now. So the first um, 30 some odd years of my life, I was just going around trying to find a way to fit in. I was emulating a lot of people around me, taking on their personality characteristics and their traits and things like that, just trying to make myself feel like more human, you know, and also I have a twin brother as well that kind of, you know, I can kind of copy him a little bit because I felt like he was human, you know. <laughs> so just in that dynamic, I felt like I was a lost boy for a very, very long time before any type of you know therapy or anything like that. So reading your piece was helpful to me in understanding it, too, because one of the things I thought that you conveyed really well was this idea that when – and it kind of returns us to the earlier conversation I was having with the clinician. When you're in this state of kind of a need that you can't fully get met, uh, that it's an itch you can't ever completely scratch uh, for whatever sort of nourishment you're seeking uh, due to the narcissism, um, it's hard to direct any of your energy anywhere else, right? I mean, uh, a baby crying, uh, a wife uh, who needs you in some way, needs you to be present in some kind of way, those start to look like obstacles because you're so desperate to get this itch scratched. I don't know. Can you say a little bit more about that? So I feel like with the baby crying and the wife needing like her emotional needs met and things like that, it feel more it feels more like an inconvenience. Like I get annoyed when my kids cry sometimes. I was like, oh my goodness, what what is it now? You know, 
You're I'm, not entirely I'm, I'm, alone there. I want you to understand that. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just like a complete annoyance. It's mm. just like, what is it now? Like I, I talked to my therapist. She's like, it's understandable to feel that way sometimes, but like all the time, like mm. it's not normal. You know, she's like, that just comes from a place you feel like people's other people's emotions are an inconvenience to you because they are getting in the way of the things that you have going on or something that you're trying to accomplish. Like you can blame other people's emotions and their needs on your lack of accomplishment and things like that in life, your lack of fulfillment in life. Like you can blame your kids for like, I had to stop my child from crying so I couldn't become successful, you know, and things like that. So typically they just become inconvenience. It's like other people's emotions and trying to process that over time becomes like just, it's, it's like you overextending. Like I barely have enough emotional energy for myself and now I got to give it to somebody else. So a lot of times expressing those emotions, like I'll go tend to my kids crying, but I'll be angry doing it. You know, I was like, okay, what do you want? You know, not right now. I, this is like before awareness, like awareness. Now I still kind of get kind of annoyed, but I'm a little bit like, I'm just like, what do you need right now? You know, just trying to figure out why they're crying and things like that. Right. So there's this pretty stunning uh, moment in the piece that you wrote about how, unbeknownst to you, your wife walks into a room while you're talking to a crying baby, like, yes. the, ba- like the baby's actually able to understand what you're saying. And you're basically saying that. <laughs> you're saying, yeah. How am I supposed to deal with you? I need to get my own stuff done. Why are you crying all the time? And she uses the word for the first time, narcissist, about you. And that sends you on a kind of hunt to find out what that word really means and, and whether it's true about mm-hmm. you. So what did you do? So, yeah, I've, I've heard the word narcissist before growing up, but not, nobody ever, I mean, I've heard people call me like kind of self-entitled and whatever, kind of growing up and stuff like that. So I heard the word narcissist. So when she first said it, it was kind of like she was calling me cocky or conceited or arrogant. It wasn't like, I was like, and I called her one back, typical, you know, just typical narcissist. Like, you're a narcissist. Like, you do this, you know. Um, so when she left, I was just, you know, I'm super inquisitive person. I was like, all the insults she could have hurled at me. Why did she call me this, you know? So I got on the Google and I typed in the word narcissist and Google just, you know, auto fields or gives you suggestions. They're like, did you mean narcissistic personality disorder? And, you know, I'm like, I, well, I didn't mean that, but, you know, let's go down this rabbit hole. And, and just seeing that stuff, like seeing the symptoms and the signs and the traits, it just made sense to me. Like when I told you, I felt out of place growing up. I was asking myself why and those questions, like the traits and the signs and the symptoms just kind of provided me those answers as to why I felt out of place. I was like, wow, this, this is me, you know? And I remember texting my wife that she might actually still have that text. Cause she says everything. <laughs> um, I was just like, you know what? I am a narcissist. Like this is, this is kind of cathartic and weird at the same time. But it was just cause like, I, this is me. And I was like, Hey, you know what? There's no cure, but you know what I'll do? I can go to therapy. And so, you know, of course, like just like a lot of other narcissistic people would do. I told her I would go to therapy. She she had moved out, but she came back in like February of 2017. I didn't go to the therapy till October of that year. You know, I just mm-hmm. told her what she wanted to hear to get back into the house. But then she just brought it up again in conversation later on. I was like, you, you remember that therapy promise you made? I was like, God. So <laughs> I, I guess I, I guess I gotta go. You know, so. I, but between that, between just you know February and October, I had joined some self aware narcissist Facebook groups. And those helped me out too, though, because a lot of people in there were posting things that I could have asked from my own point of view. I was like, wow, that sounds like me. I could have posted that, you know? And they kind of showed me, kind of guided me down the pathway of how to find a therapist and things like that. So I'm super thankful for those groups being there. So my sense is there's no vaccine, there's no gorilla glue that you put the pieces together that are broken inside you, and then you go forward, right? There isn't a cure so much as a, a new set of strategies. 
Yeah, it's just a new set of strategies for me. Like I would, I mean, some some people ask me, do I want to be cured? But like, just like doing what I do now, I just talk to so many people that are dealing with narcissistic people or toxic people, or whatever. And I don't, I was, I don't, I don't know if I want to be cured anymore. I kind of like how I am now, just because I don't have to deal with so many emotions and things like that. I don't have to process it so much. I can kind of like have my own state and come at things from a, a very logical perspective, as from an emotional point of view. Like this is why I feel this way. Now, now I just like actually this is what's going on you know but like the therapy is kind of like i don't like when people ask me like can narcissists get better without therapy i, just, I don't believe they can like this just is my pers my perspective without the tools of therapy i wouldn't be where i am right now you know without being open honest and vulnerable in therapy and sharing my and being being willing to sit in that shame like um like uh, mark was just saying a little while ago mm -hmm. uh we, without being able to sit in that shame and just admit to the, some of the stuff that i've done I wouldn't be here right now because even before therapy from ages uh, 20 to 32, I had already, I've been doing a lot of personal development and reading books and stuff like that. And it still hadn't gotten me, you know, my life was a little bit better, but it hadn't increased the way I wanted it to with therapy. Cause for me, therapy is like personal, personal development, personal development that is catered to me. Like Tony Robbins and them are catered to a worldwide audience. Whereas my own personal therapist is catered to just me. Right. And so um, and, and it seems to me I want to go back to what I was talking to Mark about, too, because I think it's very appropriate here is there are really kind of two things going on. Right. One of them is how miserable do you make people around you? You want to stop making the people that you love, uh, your wife, your children, maybe your mm -hmm. twin brother. Or the, you want to stop making them miserable with the things that are manifestations uh, of this uh, kind of empty space or hungry space inside you. But there's also the hungry space inside you. Those are two different mm -hmm. things in a way. Right. You can begin to deal with some of those exterior things where you don't hurt people as much uh, by figuring figuring out how to become that kind of person. But but I, I'm wondering whether the gnawing, crying thing that's inside you uh, ever quiets down any more or less. I would I would say that the I would call it like my, my therapist calls it like the shadow person or the shadow voice or whatever, or it's kind of like just the ego. I just feel like doing what I do now with my social media platform. I feel like the voice is is still there it doesn't go away you know that's why i tell people i'm not cured or anything like that the voice is still there it's just it, instead of just a roaring loud voice it's kind of like normal talking or a whisper nowadays you know <laughs> if i'm in a bad state of mind or i'm feeling down the voice gets louder and louder and louder but if i'm doing what i need to be doing just like my, my exercises is taking care of myself mentally and physically and just trying to be present in life the voice goes it doesn't go away again it's just it just kind of it's like you turn the volume now a little bit. So maybe you could talk a little bit too about, I mean, one of the things that we're dancing around here is the idea of empathy, right? The, mm -hmm. the, the ability to look at somebody else's pain uh, and, and feel their pain and the ability to look at maybe even somebody else's joy and be happy for that person. Um, this is something that maybe comes a little bit more, more naturally to some people than others. I do think there's sort of a gradient or a continuum. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's, you know, off or on switch. Uh, but this is something uh, presumably you've had to work on so so what did that work look like so just for me it just comes come to the point of understanding that i can't control everything around me because i think just trying to control so much stuff around me was just it takes away from what's what's important in life and i it would i wouldn't allow myself to connect to people that way you know even my wife and kids I, i'm connected to them i love and i care about them it's just like it, it, you know just the empathy thing i just didn't understand why they were feeling it the way that they feel but kind of going through therapy and just taking the time to just kind of look internally, working through some of the childhood trauma and the issues that I've actually experienced has helped me connect more 
to the empathetic side. I, I wouldn't say I've gained empathy. I feel like I understand it more, like cognitively, like cognitive empathy. I understand why you feel the way you feel. I just, I just don't feel that same way. You know, I wouldn't feel that same way if I were in your shoes. But I understand why you're, why you're crying. I understand why you are happy, and I can do be happy for you. I was like, oh, okay, I get that. You know, I understand why you feel that way. I just don't like internally. It's just like it's kind of like silence. You know. That is why I was describing silence. Mm. I just don't feel that just that way. You know, I'm trying to, I try my hardest to connect and understand it and be, be more present in the moment. I feel like being present in the moment helps with the, the lack of empathy, but it doesn't increase the empathy. If you understand what I'm saying. Right. You, Lee, you may be the first person in history to use social media to become less, nar- less narcissistic. You know, I think about social media. Yeah. <laughs> Some people say I'm more narcissistic because I use social media. And I get that in my comment section. Like, this is the narciss- this is the ultimate narcissistic <laughs> supply. And I was just like, I can understand what people say when they say that. But again, I just I just know no matter what I do, it'll never be enough. You know, just how this is how my mind works. I understand that. You know, I'm chasing happiness. I think a lot of narcissists are chasing happiness or that fulfillment or to fill that void that you were speaking about earlier. And it'll just never be enough because I just feel like it's a bottomless, you know, it's a cup with holes in the side. It'll always leak out and you'll be looking looking for something else to try to fill it to the top. That's a great image. Um, So I guess the last question I have, you know, life is full of mysteries and the mysteries are fascinating. Uh, Sometimes they're also very troubling, and maybe this one is both, but you do have a twin brother. He doesn't yes. seem to have the same kind of wiring. Um, this has got to be something you wondered about a lot. Um, I don't know. Do you have any kind of working hypothesis about what happened there? Um, I think a lot of things, uh, we went through a lot of similar experiences, but I think a lot a lot has to do with your perception of events in your childhood. Mm-hmm. You know, the way you perceive things in your childhood, he just perceived things differently than I perceived them. And I just feel like just being the older twin by three minutes, I always, always kind of taken on the role as protector or older brother, even though we are like three minutes apart. Um, it's it just like I always kind of took on like uh, the the protector role, and I just took on the brunt of a lot of stuff that he didn't have to experience. Also, you know, I'm just way more, you know, we're the same size or whatever. I'm just way more like violent and angry than he is, you know, because because I had to take on a protector role to not let anything happen to my brothers or my little brothers and things of that nature, you know, so. I'm way less violent now in my late 30s than I was in my early 20s. Good to hear. The whole story is a good story, I think. Uh, Lee Hammock, a self-aware narcissist. Narcissist, you can uh, learn more about him and his insights through TikTok and other social media under the handle Mental Healness. Thank you for your time today, Lee. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for, for the opportunity. All right. We'll take a little break here, and we'll come back. We'll talk about narcissism and politics. Can you imagine narcissism and politics? Where would you even begin to find that? Suffer any consequence. You never stayed with anyone longer than 10 minutes. You never understand anyone showing resistance. Dear popular boy, I know you're used to getting everything so easily. A stranger to the concept of reciprocity. And people aren't always like you in this society. And any talk of selflessness, and any talk of working at this, and any talk. Running for the door. 
All right. Well, uh, in my attempt not to be a narcissist, one of the things I try to do is make it clear that these things are team efforts. Uh, Kat Pastor is our technical producer today. Uh, the producer of this particular episode was Jennifer LaRue, uh, and uh, also helping out our senior producer, Lily Tyson, uh, and Jonathan McPants. It's a team effort. You see what I'm saying here? Uh, all right. So uh, our last segment here is uh, about narcissism and politics. Maybe narcissism and public life would be a better way of putting it. Uh, Pete Hatami uh, is a distinguished professor of political science at Penn State University, and he joins us now. Welcome to our conversation. Hey, thanks for having me. So my friend Bill Curry, who uh, ran for governor of Connecticut twice and served as our state controller, uh, he, he, he has a great line. He says, everybody who's attracted to politics is trying to address some psychic chasm, some unhealed wound. Uh, and what they don't understand is that politics is the worst place to go to try to do that. Um, so you do a lot of research uh, about that intersection of narcissism, narcissism and politics. I mean, there's some names that are kind of inevitably going to come up in this conversation. But beyond those, names. Um, I mean, do you start to see a real genuine correlation between narcissism and political activity? Definitely. I mean, I think there's two domains, and I think you hit the nail on the head. There's, you know, your elected officials, your um, your primary leaders, and that's, you know, one class of individuals, and then you have the general public. And, and without a doubt, I, without narcissism, you wouldn't have any political leaders. I mean, the the need for affirmation, ego, self-love, and loathing that drives, as you hit on, the, that desire and ability to see simply self-promote, it's required to survive a political campaign. So I, I can't see how um, you would even find someone in politics today, given the design and structure that doesn't have some elevated level of narcissism. Um, but you also have it in the general public, and it comes out in different ways. Right. And, and you know, I want to talk about the general pub public, too. But just sort of back up, I think a lot of politicians will say, no, 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 no. You know, uh, I I did this because I want to help the world be a better place. And I think I have good ideas. And, yeah, my ideas, I think, are better than the other guy's ideas. Um, uh, but what I'm here to do is to improve society and benefit the common weal. Um, and I guess that's not entirely exclusive of also having some narcissistic tendencies. Is that sort of where where you land? Yeah, you know, those aren't mutually exclusive. And so most people think of narcissism as people who are self-centered, vain, or have an inflated sense of their qualities or achievements. And that is certainly true. But narcissism is complex and multidimensional. You have these vulnerable and grandiose aspects. You have, you know, uh, the ability to lead and desire to lead and believe that you're right. And so you have to have those things to be an elected official. It has to be more than just wanting to help. You have to actually believe you have the ability to help and you're the right person to do it. And it's those elements that are part of narcissism. And so not all narcissistic traits are necessarily bad. I mean, you to be an effective CEO, you have to you know, believe you're right. To be an effective leader, you have to be, believe you're right, often at great personal cost. So, you know, those aren't mutually exclusive, but it's when the more kind of negative sides, the the the, the parts of, you know, devaluation of others, aggressive, entitled, manipulative, dominant, superior, you know, fantasies of glory, delusion. Those elements that also come with narcissism and those dimensions, and those tend to be, you know, the kind of the traits that we most focus on because we see the negative outcomes. And so if you think of it as a multidimensional trait, then you can see why there might be some people who want to do good. They just think they're the best ones to do it. 
Right. It, it seems like there are trade-offs, right? I mean, I was reading a, a, a paper uh, by um, a Berkeley business professor, Jennifer, Jennifer Chapman, and her colleagues about you just mentioned business leaders. You know, we can think of some people in the news right now, yes. but but uh, and one of them owns Twitter, but. Um, but it seemed like there, there was tr- there were you know and you and I mentioned before the kind of self valorizing biographies of Jack Welch and and Lee Iacocca and Steve Jobs and people like that uh, and maybe you throw Elizabeth Holmes in there maybe a little bit of an element of sociopathy in there but you feel like there's trade offs maybe the narcissistic person uh, is more confident about confident about seeking and introducing an innovation and maybe over the short term the fast twitch muscles of the narcissistic person really well work well in driving an opportunistic, innovating company. The problem is long-term, right? Because these people tend to burn their bridges. They get into lawsuits. Uh, the stock price of their electric car company starts crashing. <laughs> yeah. Right? I mean, the, the, it, but it's not exactly just all positive or all negative, I sense. Right. It's it, As you know, it's context-dependent. So, you know, um, narcissism can work really well if it's constrained. And so when you have, you know, constrained narcissistic leadership and where you have this endless pursuit of self-image, but it's tied to actually success, then you actually get a really good outcome for the public or constituents or what have you. But when the environment has shifted, and that's where you start to see things really change and think of our modern political environment where you know we have this hyper-partisan mainstream media focused on profit, we have this unregulated social media um, that has kind of created this post-truth, angry, combative public. And now you don't really need to tie success to success. Um, you know, we, we sort of have entered this space where the narcissist would excel that uh, facts and, um, you know, outcomes are almost irrelevant. What's more relevant is what you can present as the image of self. And that's where narcissists, extreme narcissists really excel, this delusion of self and, and version of grandeur that they can promote. And their confidence is alluring. People believe it. I mean, think of Santos maybe might be a great example where the time it takes to actually fact check it's too late. And so yeah, there's 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 environmental context that says a lot about the success and failure of those high in narcissism and what dimensions that they're high in. Right. And and you know, so when people when I try to explain in a nutshell what happened in 2016, I always say, well, each party nominated the candidate with the uh, the highest net negative approval rating uh, in the his, <laughs> in, sure in, did. in the history of each party. And, and then yeah. one of those people won the popular vote and the other one won the electoral college and that's the whole election right there. But you would also yeah. say that you were looking at two narcissists but very different uh, shades of narcissism or, or variants of narcissism. Say some more about that. Yeah, definitely. You know, if I, uh, it's always difficult. You don't want to, um, you know, give a clinical diagnosis to anybody, but certainly the great thing about public figures and elected leaders is they present so much themselves in public. It's easy to kind of make the connections. So your Trump is, you know, displays the traits of your classic vulnerable narcissist, right? Calling people names, calling them evil, um, even for something as simple as asking a tough press question, he, he's so easily manipulated by others um, that all you have to do is be nice to him. And then he thinks you're great. Think of his like treatment of you know the Korean dictator Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin. But anytime anything negative comes his way, he can't accept it because of this narcissistic injury. He needs to definitely be seen as the best. So he's, he's what you'd call like that vulnerable narcissist, um, really deeply desires needs people to think he's great and will rage if you don't. Where Clinton exhibits much more of the grandiose narcissistic traits. Um, even you know, she 
she doesn't need you to think she's great. She believes she's great. Um, and so there's a difference. You look at her campaign. It was, you know, didn't even have a slogan. It wasn't, you know, like like Obama's slogans, you know, yes, we can or change you believe in or, or even Trump make America great again. It was me, Hillary. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, it, just, it explains so much of, of their different personas, you know. Actually, at one point, I think they had two different task, force with, task forces within the campaign, each trying to come up with a slogan. So there was also this, that kind of sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. And just to get back to Trump for a second, as I'm sure you're well aware, where um, a group of clini- clinicians led by Bandy X. Lee uh, put out, first of all, a book called The Dangerous Case of Donald yeah. Trump, 27 Psychiatrists and Mental Health Experts Assess a President. And then I think there was another document that was signed by 350 um, members of the psychological profession, and they were sure. using the term narcissism in, in its clinical sense, which a lot of other people within that profession aren't entirely comfortable with. I mean, I think it's one thing to diagnose Michael Scott on the office because he's not a real person, and that itself turned out to be a cottage industry. I found lots of papers looking at him. But there's a problem, right, when you do a curbside assessment of somebody, even if they're presenting a lot of themselves. Yeah, I think we can say they exhibit these traits, but I don't think we can give a clinical diagnosis. I think that's where the line is, is that Trump certainly exhibits the traits. Hillary Clinton certainly exhibits the traits. But in order to give a true diagnosis, you need a clinician under their care. And that's usually where we draw the line. But you can make a lot of public connections with, you know, here's the list of narcissistic traits. Here's their behaviors. These are related. You can show the correlation. And I think that's generally what, you know, many people who've studied Donald Trump have done. Others, you know, they'll take it a little further. They'll say, no, definitely he's this. And maybe they're right. Um, but without being under a clinician's care, I'm usually a bit cautious on that. So we need 20 minutes for the next thing, and we've got two minutes, so I apologize for that. But I mean, <laughs> there's a way in which people take cues from leaders, or maybe just, in fact, this is who we are. But having just been through our latest crisis, we're still in the middle of a pandemic crisis, we just discovered that, you know, there were just people who were almost immune to the idea of common good, collective behavior, that kind of thing. It seemed like a kind of narcissism when people said, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to wear a mask. Uh, I don't care what you yeah. say to me. Go ahead. Take yeah. Care. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, the, the relationship that we found between a narcissism and engaging in protective policies, it was so politically loaded that our, you know, political partisans have used it to their, to their own ends. But even within these really strong left right messages and leaders we actually found some really fascinating differences between different types of narcissism controlling for all their politics the environment state laws and etc that you know those who were higher in entitlement exploitativeness uh, obviously they wore less masks and less vaccinations like hey i don't you know this doesn't apply to me um but those higher in authority and leadership seeking uh that you know wanted to be seen as important they, that actually predicted telling other people to wear a mask um, uh, but not getting vaccinated. So something that you could see in public and could be validated in public, like wearing a mask, vaccination can't. So where they could show their narcissism and gain from it, they would do that. Um, and then those higher in like selfishness, less mask, mask wearing and less vaccination, but those were more sensitive to judgment, really needed other people's approval, predicted more mask wearing and telling people to wear masks. So it's so what's interesting about this is these two, these multiple dimensions of narcissism, sometimes you can use narcissism for positive outcomes. If you could trigger 
that leadership facet in people to be seen as a leader in mask wearing, it could promote them to promote others to wear a mask. Um, so it's not always negative, as you right. noted. And that sort of approval-seeking mechanism also uh, that you just talked about. So Pete Hitemi, we have to stop there. I told you we did not have enough time. Distinguished professor of political science at Penn State University, thank you so much. And thank to, thanks to the rest of you and to Jennifer LaRue for carrying the ball here. Uh, and we will be back tomorrow. This song is about you. As we go, it's about you. Go.